The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith, your host, certified financial planner with a master's degree in financial analysis. And uh, today I'm solo. We are here in Seattle, Washington, where we've been getting uh, unusual amounts of snow and uh, what's now becoming ice. And uh, I managed to claw my way into the office today and also my uh, my fearless... Uh, Assistant Associate Simon Liu is also here. Good afternoon, Simon. How's it going, Ken? Good, good. We were the uh, the troopers, and yes, uh, also Serena and uh, and Jamie. I just want to thank them for making it in. Some of our other employees uh, couldn't get through the snow, so uh, we're going to do the best we can here today. And uh, there's a lot to talk about, Simon. I thought we could start with maybe kind of going through the current news and. You were asking me about my history uh, with relation to active management, and we uh, we were talking last week, Ethan and I, a little bit um, about our investment philosophy and kind of recapping that. And I thought we could pick up on that and answer some of the questions that uh, you you were asking about, you know, why we don't believe that uh, picking individual stocks is the best right. approach and. Next week, we are going to be uh, lucky enough to have author Larry Swedro. He's written multiple books, and he's one of uh, a very, very talented author. And uh, he has um, definitely influenced my career, and I read his first book probably about 10 years ago now. Uh, one of his first books, it was called Rational Investing in Irrational Times, and I had read it coming out of the, the technology, the collapse of the technology bubble. And um, he has written a, a new book. It's got to be his, I don't know, 12th or 13th book. I'll, we'll have to ask him. Uh, and the book that he that he just wrote is called um, Investment Mistakes That Even Smart People Make. And uh, in that book, he outlines um, even smart investors make. And he outlines about 77 different mistakes. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that and kind of preface him coming on to the show. Before we do, though, Simon, I'd like to go ahead and give out our contact information. What do you think about that? It's a good idea. I'm going to have to try to uh, – usually I, I do a variety of sound effects while Ethan is giving that data. I'm going to have to see if I can do it to myself. <laughs> that will be a challenge. <laughs> but not one that we aren't capable of handling here. If you want to send us an email, uh, you can do it during the show. This is live today. Last weekend we had to rerun. I was out of town. 
but today we are live, and so if you're just hanging out, uh, you want to ask us a question and get it to Simon while we're while we're progressing, we'd be happy to answer it uh, or do my best to t- attempt to answer it. While we're on the program, you can send us an email at contact contact at empiradio.com. Get your computer fired up there. That's contact <laughs> at empiradio. Hey, it's a typewriter. Dot com. Also, you can give us a call if you, uh, and the lines are pretty busy and clogged, but um, give us a call at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. I believe that's a completely toll-free call. Right, Simon? It is. <laughs> it is. No charge to call here at the Empirical. And if you do call or email us and we uh, we talk about your question or, or thought, We'll be happy, as usual, to send you one of our books, and maybe it'll be Larry's new book. So I wanted to order a bunch of copies of that. And if you are an investment advisor, if you're out there, as we always do at the beginning of the program, we like to invite you to contact us as well. We are are creating a uh, an empirical office system around the country to help clients um, who are looking for fee-only, um, non-commissioned Advice from experienced credentialed uh, advisors who 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 put them in a work in a fiduciary capacity where we put our clients' interests ahead of our own uh, as a part of the process in making investment and financial planning recommendations, and we do not receive product sales commissions or or kickbacks um, from the recommendations that we make or the investments that we utilize. Okay. So, Simon, today, let's take a quick look real quick at uh, what happened. Uh, the markets continue to uh, to gain ground here. Stocks, uh, I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal here, stocks finish at uh, six-month high. Stocks gain pushing major indexes to a six-month high as jobs data and bank earnings kept the rally moving. According to the Wall Street Journal here, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 45 points, or four-tenths of a point, to 12,623, hitting the session high in the final minutes of trading. The Standard & Poor's stock index rose 6.5 points, or about a half a percent, to 13.14, and the Nasdaq rose 19 points, or seven-tenths. Bank of America led the Dow, rising at 2.4% after reporting fourth-quarter revenue that exceeded expectations. I bet that's a welcome and nice change for them. They've, the stock's been pummeled and abused for the last, uh, particularly the last year here. So they have some issues. Uh, Morgan Stanley gained 5.4% as one of the top performers in the S&P 500 after reporting a fourth quarter loss that actually topped estimates. A drop in weekly jobless claims also helped. The fall was the most in more than six years. How do you like those apples, Simon? Sounds good. That kind of getting you worked up there. The economic momentum that came out of 2011 continued into 2012, said John Canale, economic strategist at LPL Financial. And uh, let's see, F5 Networks posted strong gains. Union Pacific's earnings jumped uh, bigger than expected. 24% 24% as freight revenue rose across all major segments. eBay advanced almost 4% there. Um, their uh, revenue topped expectations. So you've got a lot of earnings surprises here 
on, on some of these companies. And um, Johnson Controls was one of the weakest stocks in the S&P, sliding 8.8% after reporting a disappointing fourth quarter results and lowering its 2012 outlook. So that's kind of been what's going on. And I, I was looking at, I think, the uh, let's go to the um, international sector of the market here, if, if we could. Uh, do you mind if we do that? No, I don't. Well, I like your attitude, man. I really do. Um, the global Dow was up 1.29% uh, today. Uh, Dow Jones developed markets. Let's see here. Just wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. Pretty nice. Um, pretty nice recovery. And I, I think it's worth noting how quickly the sentiment can change. I mean, when markets were going down, we're getting barrage daily with, with uh, bad news and the fear and how quickly with just a few things like earning surprises or um, one of the economic reports coming in better than expected, how quickly it can change the attitude of the market. And as an investor, our consistent advice has always been to try to ignore, ignore to the best of your ability the day-to-day market news and realize that that information gets priced in very, very quickly. So as you notice, when there are earnings reports and the surprises occur, you tend to see a very dramatic and instant uh, reflection of those, of those price changes. It's not something where a company comes out, has a better-than-expected earnings report, and you have eight months to see the, the reflection of that. You usually see a very quick adjustment in the stock. And in many cases, before the stock, it may be the very next trade. Um, so, so before the stock can even be traded, before the average investor could get a trade in, it it, it it's already happened. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Well, Simon, uh, we got a few minutes here. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about some of the things in Larry's book. I know we okay. won't. We're only going to have him on for. I don't know, 45 minutes at the most if, we, if he stays on for the whole show. And he's got right. about 77 mistakes here. Now, he listed a lot of these in his first book. And I'll ask him, you know, what, why he reiterated them. And I noticed that he's updated them. And he, he, he much like many investment authors, have included uh, in their current writings large discussions about behavioral finance and psychology. Um, and, you know, the first... Let's just kind of click through some of the – if there's 77 ways that people make mistakes, and Larry's been in this business for a long time, so is so have I and so has Ethan. Right. We've seen almost every single one of these mistakes. So I thought maybe going into the break, we'll talk about this. When we come back, we can talk about the uh, stock. Should you be using individual stocks or should you be hiring someone to pick individual stocks for you? Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought we could – talk about that but um the number one mistake and i don't believe these are necessarily ordered in in uh by importance or anything just the way he has them listed are you overconfident of your skills and so that overconfidence issue causes many investors to make uh, big mistakes in the way that they invest and i i'm going to speak directly from my experience i'll let larry when he comes on talk about his view and what he's got in the book, but 
my experience on this overconfidence issue uh, is that when we make a series of successful investment decisions, if they consequently are successful, we have this tendency to chalk it up as skill and some uh, apparent knowledge edge over the rest of the group. We've got to take a quick break. I mean, we can come back and talk a little bit about that. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm my name is simon Liu, portfolio manager with empirical wealth management inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307 that's 1-800-923-4307 or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we are back, and it's Ken and Simon today. Um, going on the break there, Simon, we were talking about overconfidence, and we ran out of time. So uh, one of the number one mistake listed in Larry Swedro's new book, um, which is mistakes even smart investors make, right. is uh, are you overconfident in your skills? And I was just going to share my experience in the you know, literally thousands of, of people that I've met um, to discuss investing and, and, 
And in recent times, we've met some investors who've been doing things on their own a particular way. And um, because they've had some short-term success, one of the, the comments was, hey, I, I'm doing okay. I don't think I, I need help. And um, more importantly, the need to diversify seems to get put on the back burner. So I was saying that the more success we have earlier on, the greater our confidence gets. And we attribute, we tend to attribute, according to uh, psychologists and behavioral experts, we as humans tend to attribute successes to skill and failures to bad luck. And we have a very, very good filtering process where we tend to, uh, you know, how many friends or, or family or acquaintances, when they're talking about decisions they've made, particularly with investments, they tend to emphasize the greatest successes they've had. And so very infrequently do investors tell me, uh, unless I ask very specifically and pointedly, hey, tell me about your worst investment experience or the worst decision you made, I tend to hear about the, the more the decisions that actually worked out and became very profitable. Often, uh, and there was a study that was done on this, um, when you put a group of people in a room or you take a group of university students, and if you ask that group, are you an average driver, above average, or below average, you will inevitably get more than 50% of the group, and the numbers I believe are somewhere around 80%, <laughs> that claim that they are an above average driver. Sure. Um, do you get along? Another question was, do you get along well with people? Do you, do you connect with people, you know, uh, above average, average or below? And again, the same statistics. We have a tendency to believe that we are better than the average. And this is a fallacy that goes on and will lead into our discussion about active stock picking or market beating strategies because the professionals suffer from this as well, not realizing that it is a, as Bill Sharp, the Nobel Prize winner, says, a zero-sum game, which means when you have a group of people, they cannot all be above the average. <laughs> some will be above, some will be below, some will fall right in, but you can't have all of them be above. There's a show called, I think it's Lake Wobegon, where the kids are all above average. It's a fictional story. We can't we can't have that. And so when you're when it comes to investing, you have you have to think about who you're really competing with out there in the marketplace. And if you're very confident that you've made better decisions than the best professionals you could go out and hire, so you're out there managing the investments on your own. Are you really being honest with yourself? Are you stepping back and saying, hey, I really realize the statistics here. I realize that we can't all beat the market. In the end, every investor who owns a share of stock, the, the, the cumulative total is the stock market return. Some people will do better. Some people will do worse. But when you add them all up, everybody collectively will get the stock market return, which means we can't all beat the stock market. Right. Which, what does that mean? Well, that means in order for me to beat the stock market by any other way than random chance, because their chance plays a big part 
um, and understanding the, the statistics of that in your determination of it, whether it's skill or luck. And my example that I've given for a lot, and I noticed that Larry put it in his book as well, is if you had 10,000 people flipping coins and you said, we're going to have a coin flipping contest. Listen to me now or hear me later, Simon, on this. I'm listening. All right. You, you had 10,000 uh, 10, people and you say, hey, whoever gets heads, we're going to put call them winners. And, and the tails, whoever flips the tail, they're going to be losers. And they will be they will be asked to leave the contest, and only the winners will stay in the contest. Well, the first flip, on average, you would expect about 5,000 to flip ahead. The next flip, you would expect 2,500 to flip ahead. The next flip, you'd have 1,250. And you can continue this till you have 10 people at the end of a 10-year 10, 10 period, if you did this at the beginning of each year. 10 people out of 5,000 that started who flipped... Ten heads in a row. Does that make sense yeah. so far? The question I would give you is, if you were one of those ten, and you now you recognize the odds, would you attribute it to coin flipping skill? Absolutely not. If I was one of the ten, would you say, Ken is a skilled coin flipper, and therefore I will put my entire life savings with him? Nope. If that's all I had to, to, to show for it, and that's what we were staking your future retirement on. And your financial well-being. No, you, you wouldn't, right? No, of course not. It's all luck. If there was some skill, you would really have to determine, and it, we were assuming that the coin is completely fair, um, in order to determine there was any skill, you'd have to say, well, there were more than 10 people at the end that had, had flipped heads right, for 10 years in a row. So maybe there were 200. We'd have to run a, a statistical test, say, what's the margin of error on that? Because you wouldn't expect it to be exactly 10. But what's the margin of error? And what would then explain that the factor? Well, what we see in the marketplace with the professional managers, when you look at the data and you look at the studies and the research of the guys out there and women that are trying to pick individual stocks, and again, this is for the publicly traded, um, published track records, Particularly, if you look at them and you and, and they control a big chunk of the money, by the way, the, the institutional and professional mutual fund managers, where we can get the data is you see that now they're over any significant period of time, there will be some winners, there will be a few who who outperform, and outperform um, by an amount and for a period of time that it can't be completely explained away by luck, um, but you just don't see the number of them in any significant quantity and the persistence and predictability of it in the future would be the is is almost as difficult in my opinion Simon is saying hey we're going to do another 10 year contest and based on the results of the last Simon you need to pick the 10 managers that you're going to spread your money across and how would you do that you know would you pick the 10 that won the previous contest you would think too What's that? You would think to, right? Right. That would probably be your most. What else if, do you have to go on? What other What other things can you go on? Right. So you're li very likely you would say, "Hey, I'll pick the ten from the last contest." Well, what are the likelihood that those ten are going to be the winners in the next contest? Statistically, it would be the same likelihood that they would have the previous contest. But in the market, there are other forces at bay when it comes to the professional money managers that actually 
tend to lower their odds of being the winners for the next cycle. And part of that is that when they were, if they had skill, and when they do, they tend to have very small amounts of money that they're managing, and they can be very nimble with that money, and they they're, they don't have a huge market impact on what they're doing when they're trading. And also because of regulations on holding periods, you can't hold for particular securities within a mutual fund. You can't hold a more than a, a certain percentage of that company's outstanding stock. So what happens is these managers, it becomes harder and harder for them as, as they get success to continue to engage in the same strategies that enabled them to get and obtain that success in the first period of time. So some studies, some interesting studies have shown that when you look at, and that's one of uh, one of Larry's mistakes he has here, let's see what number it is. Um, do you do you pay uh, attention? It had to do with the uh, Morningstar ratings, and I'm trying to see if it's if it's in here. But something about do you pay and uh, look to the stars, or and do you, in essence, do you use do you use Morningstar as a uh, as a uh, a guide for for you to pick your your funds, and um, they did their own study. Morningstar did a study in, on on their own rating system, and what you find is picking five star managers, which are ranked based on their previous performance as a part of how they get ranked, does not enhance um, future returns. So, however, most people, if you asked them. Why did you pick that mutual fund? Why did you pick that investment that you own? Many times, I mean, the response that I get is, well, it's a five-star rated fund. Or, hey, it's okay. I know it's not doing well right now, but it's a four-star rated fund. Mm -hmm. I only sell when it gets down to three stars or less. Um, And in actuality, some studies have shown that the funds that uh, were the previous two-star or lower funds came out on top in the next cycle, and the five-star funds came out in a lower category. Um, at best, it's pretty random. So the one thing that that is uh, is very explainable is the relationship over the long run to the expense of the particular investment product and its, its category ranking over a long period. So if we looked over 10-year periods and we ranked um, John Bogle, I believe, did this in one of his books. If you look at the relationship or the correlation between expenses over the long run and the way that these funds rank, what you find is that the bottom ranking ones tend to also have high expenses. Hmm. So uh, I don't know if we got to take a breather here. If that's what you're saying, Simon. Yeah, about a minute. About a minute, okay. So. so back to this overcom. We'll finish on this overconfidence discussion. Um, some interesting. Another interesting thing is women tend to be better investors than men, not necessarily because they're, they don't experience any overconfidence, but they tend to trade a lot less. Um, one of the things about the overconfidence issue is it, it does uh, create a, a tendency for us to trade more than we really need to. All right, now we have to take a break. So we'll come back and hit on a few others. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. 
we spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment. And that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back to uh, Empirical Investing Radio. This is Ken. If you want to give us a call, I'd love to hear from you if you have any comments or experiences of your own to share with regard to uh, overconfidence or any of the other topics we're, we're, we're talking about today. The goal here is just to make you aware of some of the things that uh, we do as investors that aren't always rational. And the purpose of that is why, when you're aware of it, you can make adjustments uh, one of the ways that, that we try to keep emotions and some of these shortcomings in check is by having a well-written investment plan or investment policy statement and connecting that to the financial plan. And um, part of the process we do with clients is really understanding what their values are, what they're trying to accomplish, how important it is for them to accomplish those goals, and then reminding them when, when they do want begin to get off track and fall into some of these behavioral traps, is what I'll call them, uh, we can try to get them back online and, and remind them what was important, remind them the principles, the time-tested principles that are backed by empirical data 
not our intuition or our own skewed view of what really happened in the past. And on that note, Simon, uh, who is still here with me, you know, a lot of times that overconfidence, again, as I was saying, we, we tend to chalk up our successes as skill and, and, and uh, failures as bad luck, but we also have a skewed view of our own track record and performance. And it's only if, if we force ourselves to track that and, and that we can hold ourselves accountable. So as an advisor, one of the things we do is we have, from the time a client comes in and signs, we have the performance data tracking from the inception and over any time period. And it's important to properly evaluate performance. Um, and that's part of the process that we do is explaining, well, if we're investing in all stocks, I wrote a whole paper about benchmarking the way that you should review your performance. But what I find is that most people out on their own who are picking their own securities and are very confident about it, when you quiz them and you begin to ask, what's the what's your performance been? They usually answer with very vague answers, like it's been good, you know, or I think I've done better than the market over this period. But if you ask them specifically, well, what's the annualized rate of return been for the last ten years? They don't know. Yet they're chalking themselves up as successful investors, primarily because a very simple measure might be, well, I think I put a certain amount in the account. That amount has now grown to be a larger amount. Therefore, I must be doing pretty well. I don't. I don't really need any help, or I'm doing a better job than I could you know, could be if I otherwise diversified my portfolio or looked at other options. But what I found is when you examine that in one simple way, is when you think of people who bought houses. A lot of times, it's very common. How many people? Let's take you, Simon. Your parents, for example. If you ask them, what's been the annualized uh, rate of return, the internal rate of return on your home, would, would they be able to tell you from the time they purchased They'd have it? no idea. So if you said, hey, what was it since inception, the last one year, five year, ten years, twenty years, I don't know, how long have they lived in the in the house that they're in? Uh, about six years. Okay. Now, they could go to Zillow at this point. Yeah, you, you know? can go to Zillow. Um, but previous to that ex- existing, um, most people wouldn't be able to tell me what their annualized rate of return, even if they knew how to calculate it. But they did tend to say, I know I bought it at this amount, (laughs) and I know it's worth more than that, Mm -hmm. so I've done pretty well on my home. As long as they're not losing anything. As long as they're not losing anything. That, when I've looked at experiences within the investment market, and I say, well, this is what you had. You said you had this, and now it's grown to this. The annualized rate of return on that many times is less than just owning something like the S&P 500. But they didn't realize it. Um, and it's easy in some cases where you look at individual stocks mm-hmm. to say, hey, I've held this stock for 20 years or whatever it is. And, yeah, you know, I had $1,000 of it. And now it's worth $50,000 or whatever. And they think it's done great until you actually calculate out the annualized rate of return, including the dividends and everything. And then compare that against something like owning the entire market. And you find out, well, actually, it's done less than that, but I took on a whole heck of a lot more risk. But there's that that error that we do. Um, So the way to counter that is to really understand the statistics and to acknowledge that you may think that you know what you're doing, but it's not what you know. It's what you know that the rest of the market doesn't know. 
And so when you think you have insights, many times, again, I'll give another example here, Simon, as I said, where do you get your ideas? And it's very, very infrequent that I've met an individual investor who says, well, I, uh, I have my own proprietary system and I go out and visit the individual companies and I go hang out with the CEOs. Usually they're getting those ideas. Where are they getting them from, Simon? From the news. From the news or Susie Orman or your man Jim Cramer or whoever. <clears throat> or they're reading, they're subscribing to newsletters, which other people subscribe to. Um, and they assume that other people don't have that data. And so they're not, they're not going through financial statements on their own. They're, they are relying on the data that some other analyst typed up for them, which that analyst and that analyst's friends, cousins, uncles, girlfriends, whatever, they all have access to that information along with the rest of the world. So it's, it's, you don't, you, you think you have some insight there, but you really don't. And what the market's pricing in, today or tomorrow, when you're buying a stock and saying, hey, I'm buying the stock, instead of owning the entire market, I'm going to own this single stock, for example. You're basically assuming that you know more about that stock than anyone else does. And when an analyst says, hey, it should be trading at $100 a share and it's trading at 50 believe me, there's a reason why it's not at 100 um, And that's because the market knows what the stock is worth. What's our time schedule here, Simon? We got a couple of minutes. Yeah, we got a couple of minutes. So let's talk about the stock thing for a minute while while we're at that. So one of the core tenets of our investment philosophy that we believe it, and Larry, I believe, will uh, agree with this when he comes on, is that you need to diversify. Um, you need to really realize that market returns, stock returns, are coming from the fact that stocks as a category have risk inherent in them, that equities carry a certain type of risk, and they should be priced in accordance with a few different factors that, that academics have been able to identify that, for the most part, measure differences in risk for groups of stocks that may increase the expected return uh, or decrease it depending on what type of stock. So if you're buying small companies, as an example, versus larger companies, Historically, over very, very long-term periods of time, you have to be investing for a long period to have confidence that you'll get this reward. can't be any one single year or a month or a week or something ridiculous like that. But when we get out to very, very long periods of time, to the extent we have that data, you see the premium, the, the return premium emerge there. But picking one stock over another is a very tricky thing, particularly when the price is based on very, very unpredictable future events. Think about the kinds of things that can happen to a stock that can derail an otherwise perfect plan. Um, you know, think about the company, some of the companies that, well, I just read today East, Eastman Kodak, it's been around for 100 and some years, is file, filing for bankruptcy. Um, and just think about, well, it might have been a reasonably good run company, but the technology shift change their business model and uh, they didn't adapt fast enough so but let's talk about this with the stock thing so we were talking before i said you know when it comes to the 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 active world of trying to pick a handful of stocks 
um, or hire a manager, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And it, from the very beginning of my career to now, it always kind of bothered me um, until eventually I said, hey, we're not, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going right. to be engaging in, in helping pick mutual funds or, or helping to be the guy helping to pick individual stocks because there are too many discrepancies in how that works. Um, and I can give you a few simple examples, but you know, my experience with, with advisors that uh, I've worked for where we're picking stocks, you have a client that has a certain amount of equity that, that is appropriate and you're picking a handful of stocks. Um, how do you weight those stocks? Do you weight them by size? Now, in an index fund, and if you buy a, a mutual fund that captures an entire index, typical index funds do it by weight. They weight each particular stock by the size that stock makes up of the group of stocks it's in. So if it's 10% of, of the market, it gets 10% of the mutual fund. And as the market changes, as that stock goes up or down, there's a natural change in the proportional weighting. So you're getting the market as it exists, as those companies make up the market. If Microsoft is 3% of the market, or currently Apple's 3%, so one of the top 10, then it's 3% of your S&P index fund. Now, if you're an active manager, though, what I, I see is how do they, what, what determination do most individuals make when they're buying 40 stocks and say they're going to put $100,000 into them? Are they going to weight them that way? And when they are changing proportionally in the market, are they rebalancing their portfolio to equate to what those proportions are now? Probably not. Probably not, right? Probably not. Because stocks that they may not even have in their portfolio can be becoming a larger and larger part. So we were just right. talking about dividend investing, and we wrote about that. Well, if you were only investing in a dividend-focused strategy, you would miss out on a company like Apple that doesn't pay, but it's 3% of the market, right? Right. So you have to determine, if you're really thinking it through, what the logical way of weighting those stocks are. What I see most commonly is that individuals start by just equally weighting. Hey, I'll pick 10 or 20, 30, 40 stocks, and I will equally weight to each of those. Now you're making an active decision that may or may not affect the returns. Now, what one of those stocks goes down, and... Uh, you have to set price targets. I'm assuming if you're deciding to hold a subset of the market, mm -hmm. if you're an active manager out there and you're or an individual who's picking stocks, and I, I think the argument some advisors make uh, is, "Hey, I'm going to pick you stocks, um, Mr. Client. You don't want a mutual fund, you know, because then you get blended in with every. I'll, I'll, you want your own individual portfolio of stocks. Yet most of them don't manage it." As a customized portfolio, they still manage it as if it is a mutual fund. Right. They buy, if there's 40 stocks, my experience with the, with these guys has been everybody gets sold the same stock at the same time. So one client might have bought in at $10 a share, another at 15 another at 20 another at 25 If the stock hits the target, if it was 30 they all get sold out at the same time. Right. Well, we're out of time here. We'll be right back and we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about this. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back. We are... uh Talking about the decision to pick individual stocks, and um, or should you be using diversified uh, funds? And in our opinion, and I was just reading an article, actually, I read a lot of articles, and uh, uh, there was one about the fact that last year, I think it was the Growth Fund of America, the American Funds Growth Fund, Growth Fund of America which is one of the largest actively managed mutual funds out there, um, lost somewhere into effect, I think it was $20 billion. Um, wow. There was a net outflow. I mean, it's got, I think, $100 plus billion in this mm-hmm. fund. But, uh, but there was a huge net outflow, and there was large inflows into exchange-traded funds and index funds. I think one of the Vanguard ETFs was one of the, one of the larger... Uh, experience one of the larger inflows for the year. So you have a, a net outflow from this actively managed fund. Well, part of it was it didn't do so hot the previous year. I think it was at the bottom of the uh, performance uh, ranking for 2010 or 2011, I think. Um, and uh, so that would explain some of it, but probably not all of it because of the long-term track record. It's still been reasonably good on that fund. Um, but I believe it's because people are really starting to wise up. I mean, that's what we've been doing here for several years, talking about the research that's out there about this, pointing out the various um, obvious flaws with the, the active approach to picking securities like this, whether you're doing it for yourself or having a fund manager or an investment advisor. And going into the break, Simon, I was saying that so say I'm a sales guy for an investment advisor, and I and my argument is, hey, I don't I don't pick mutual funds for you. This is common. Why would you pay me a fee, and then pay a fee inside of a mutual fund? Mm-hmm. So I hear that, and I know that's their pitch, right? Um, yet a lot of them still use mutual funds. They tend to pick a small group of stocks, a core group of stocks, and then they'll say, well, 
we'll, we'll diversify with funds. Some of them have, not by choice, but a lot of these managers have been forced because they missed out on the international returns and the returns and things like REITs, things that we've been investing in for years. Mm-hmm. By picking stocks, usually they're not going out and buying a handful of emerging market stocks. Even they know that's a very dangerous game. So they were put in a tough position, right? If you're an individual out there and you're picking it, you're in the same position. Do I not? Do I forego asset classes? If we look at emerging markets, 8% plus per year since 1998, the return premium, the additional annual, that's per year return over just owning, say, U.S. large cap stocks, somewhere to the effect of between 8 and 9% per year. That is a gargantuan amount of money difference <laughs> compounded over over a, over that period of time. So you have a manager, maybe he edges out a half a percent return advantage over the S&P if he's picking large cap stocks. If you said the best of the best managers and you extended the period to 10 or 20 years, what are they really trying to do, most of them? If they could get one or even two percent, that would be phenomenal return premium for those guys. I mean, that's how tough it is to do it. But then you say, and here's been my argument all along for the last 10 plus years, why would I even play that game when all I have to do is diversify outside of that box? I can have the potential to lower the, the volatility in my portfolio, and I have an expected return premium that I can track to economic reasons or, or sound reasons. Hey, emerging markets, they're going to be volatile. We know they're volatile. There's no secret about that. And if they are going to be volatile, they better be priced over the long run in a way where there's a higher expected return. Because I'm not that dumb. I'm not going to take a lower return for more risk if I don't have to, if I can potentially avoid it. So if you're going to be picking individual stocks, you have some tough decisions to make because you have to forego. It's very difficult for you to get the average person or manager out there, advisor. So what I've seen a lot of these active guys do that are the the fee-only advisors like us that are still clinging on to this, in my view, antiquated perception of how markets work and where the value is as being an advisor is then they said okay well we'll start wrapping some funds around um, some of our stock picks and it started where they would wrap actively managed funds funds that are other stock pickers and i started pointing out some of the hypocrisy here because what i would see is you got this manager this manager who's your advisor he's picking stocks and when a mutual fund manager he picks for, say, maybe he only picks stocks in the large core group, blend group, mm-hmm. and he picks mutual funds to get small and international and emerging markets, well, if those mutual fund managers underperform their benchmarks, these guys are very quick to take get, to cut them and put in new mutual fund managers for those for those sectors. You know, and they will have an analyst who's just reviewing the mutual funds. And if the mutual fund doesn't, so I would say, hey, well, who's watching you? So when you underperform, who fires you? You've been picking the 20 stocks or 40 stocks. Or who's Well, you know, um, they don't like to talk about that, right? But it's a clear, it's a clear oddity within that system that, hey, every time one of my mutual fund picks doesn't do well, I don't go to the manager and go, well, now you can adapt and change and or it takes a full cycle for us to realize the value in the fund, I would notice that they would clip them pretty quickly. 
but yet they wouldn't do that to their own stock picks. Hey, I'm the stock picker and I'm underperforming. I'll clip myself. No, I'll just keep adapting. I could change my approach. And I was telling you some of the things when you when you get into the stock picking and you have an advisor doing it um, that are odd that I experience, which is, hey, you have a new client that just came in. He gets the same group of stocks a client had from two years ago. The only problem was in a couple of weeks, the manager was just about to take axe two or three or, or more of those stocks. And so now he's getting churned because we're all coming in at different prices. Was it as good of a buy? When it was twenty dollars a share going to a hundred, as it is when it's ninety going to a hundred, does that make any sense? No. In that world, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If you're buying an index fund or you're using a very diversified institutional type of uh, asset class fund, it doesn't matter because all stocks are there um, indefinitely into the future, into the proportion that they make up of that index, and changes are made on a very systematic basis. So we only had a couple of minutes. I could go on about that for a long period of time. But to me, it makes a lot more sense if I'm going to beat the market or that's my goal. To use the science to do it, it's almost the same as using leverage. You know, if you understand physics of, hey, I could try to pick up a thousand pound rock over my head or I can use a lever, right? And, right. and it's a lot easier once I get that leverage to pick up that same amount of weight. Well, which of the two seems smarter to you? Picking up the thousand pound rock over here with your bare hands over your head or using the lever? The active guys and the people out there, to me, they're the ones trying to pick up the rock by themselves. The guys who understand and say, hey, I, I, I think there's plenty of value here in diversification and really uh, trying to identify where returns are coming from and how I can structure to get that extra return. Uh, without taking on a lot of risk to get very little in return. So a couple of other things, and we'll, I'm really excited. Uh, tune in next week when we do have uh, Larry Sweatcher on. We can interview him, and I'm going to work up a list of questions, uh, some of today's common questions for investors. But he has a, uh, a whole list here. You know, Do you project recent trends into the future? Do you believe events are more predictable after the fact than before? You extrapolate from small samples. Um, there's a whole list. We don't have time to, to go through this today, but at least we hit a little bit about something that that I've been very passionate about and we haven't talked much about on the program, which is getting the proper diversification going in your portfolio. So we'll uh, tune in next week when we have Larry on the show. and Have a great week and uh, be safe. Hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week.